So after focusing our attention in chapter 12 last week where Luke was, was talking about Peter and, and him being in prison in Jerusalem, Luke now returns to the church in Antioch. And as you notice from this, the, the scripture reading, Luke starts talking about the church of Antioch in chapter 11 and returns to it in chapter 12, 13, sorry, the first verses of chapter 13. And from then on, Luke describes Paul's first missionary journey. One commentator says that the greatest chapter in the church's history is about to open. A friend of mine describes this passage as the prayer meeting that changed the world. And I agree. This may be one of the most exciting moments in God's kingdom. From Antioch, God is launching the church's mission to the rest of the world. And it's not an overstatement to say that we are here today because of what we read in our passage today. This is what I call the Antioch Movement. God sets his mission in motion in a way that, uh, that was not moving back movement. So, if as a church we really want to see a movement like the one we are reading today, we must really pay attention to these principles or char characteristics of the Antioch Church. And I've listed six of them. Yes. <laughs> I, I told my family my last sermon was three points and it was almost half an hour. <laughs> so bear with me. <laughs> I'll give them to you right away. Six points, six principles. Here they are. The Antioch movement needs an intentionally evangelistic intentionally evangelistic godly taught godly taught multiculturally focused multiculturally focused prayerfully dependent prayerfully dependent spirit led spirit led and number six Generously sending church. So we'll go through all six of these. Some of them will spend more time than others, so don't worry. First, intentionally evangelistic. If there's going to be a movement, the church must be intentionally an intentionally evangelistic church. Yes, sometimes... Only a few will be sent as missionaries and church planters. But the mission of God is the mission of the whole church, not just a few. And Antioch was such a church. Look at chapter 11, verses 19 to 21. Now, those who, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, 
traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news, the gospel, about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great multitude, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So telling the good news, preaching the gospel, is about speaking, intentionally telling people about his life, death, and resurrection. And there has, a, there has been a good emphasis among evangelical churches uh, over the past decade maybe on, on relationships and building relationships with, with unbelievers to widen our circles beyond our friends in church. However, we must not confuse building relationships with being intentionally evangelistic. To preach the gospel is to speak about, to proclaim with our mouths the forgiveness of sins through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And it takes courage, of course. What, what if I do it wrong? What if I can't answer their questions? What if they reject me? We need to remember these first Christians. They were scattered by persecution even despite the persecution. Did you see that, verse 19 again? Persecution produced evangelism. And not just a few paid outreach pastors, but normal church members. None of them had any seminary training. They had not been going to church for more than six to eight years. And they did something that was not done in history before. They began to speak. They were intentionally preaching the gospel to Greeks also. We all need to be involved in evangelism and giving testimony of the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone. We must be intentionally and pervasively evangelistic. So take courage. Don't be ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for those, for everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And note verse 21 how the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed. So do we want a great number of people to come to Jesus? And we need to be intentionally evangelistic, pro proclaim the good news of our Lord, all of us. Godly taught. The church must be godly taught. The, this Antioch movement is also characterized by godly teaching. What do I mean by that? Well, a well-built church grand, grounded in sound constant, encouraging, biblical teaching through godly pastor-teachers. Look at verses 20, 22 to 24. 
news of this, of what was happening in Antioch, reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived, he saw that the grace of God, what the grace of God had done, and he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. You've probably heard about Barnabas and how his name, Luke tells us in chapter 4, means son of encouragement. So here he is, in fact, encouraging the church. And note how Luke, Luke describes him in verse 24. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. As a pastor, as a husband, as a father, oh, how I wish I was remembered like this. A godly man, encouraging man, full of the Holy Spirit. And Barnabas goes and gets Saul and brings him to Antioch, verse 26. And for a whole year, constantly, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And here's how we know the church was well built. After a year of sound, constant, encouraging, biblical teaching through godly men, we have not just two, but five prophets and teachers. Did you see that? We now jump to Acts chapter, chapter 13, verse 1. Now, in the, church of, uh, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. And Luke goes on and lists five of them. So a godly leader recruits, trains, appoints godly men as new pastors and leaders. Godly pastors and leaders are not afraid to empower others in ministry because they have God's kingdom in mind and heart rather than their own kingdom. So for this movement to continue, We'll need more and more godly pastors, teachers, leaders passionate about God's mission. And consider this. God may be calling you to be trained and sent out to teach and train others. So, intentionally evangelistic, godly taught, multicultural focus. Number three. We've seen... Right? Evangelism, godly teaching. But the third principle of the Antioch movement is a multicultural church. And this is evident by the list of prophets and teachers we see in verse 1. Now, at the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Barnabas, a Levite from Cyprus. Simeon is most probably from Africa, since Niger is a Latinism that means black. Lucius was from Cyrene, or North Africa, 
But North Africa was not mainly black. They were more like what we, could, we would call Arabic. Manaen is a Greek form of a Hebrew name. So this man was probably an Hellenistic Greek Jew. The significant thing mentioned about Manaen is that he had been raised with Herod the Tetrarch, like a, a foster brother. So, one, auth one author states, he would have been what we might call a prince, a man of high station who knew the ruling dynasty intimately. And finally, we have Saul, who, who will later be called Paul, the apostle. And we know Paul, the former Pharisee, Hebrew of Hebrews, persecutor of the church, now apostle of the risen Lord. As a friend puts it, this group is geographical, ethnical, sociological, and culturally diverse. And we need multicultural leadership if we want multiculturally focused church. But why do we need a multicultural church? If we want to reach out the world, we need the world to see that everyone is welcomed, that we embrace and enjoy God's creativity manifested in race and language. Kent Hughes, former pastor of College Church in Wheaton, writes, the perfect profile for a missionary church was exhibited here at Antioch. They were in microcosm what the church would become in the world. This was no accident, but rather a deliberate work of God. Four, prayer dependent. The Antioch church is also prayerfully a prayerfully dependent church. Did you see that? Verses 2 and 3. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So, after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So we'll spend a little more time in this point since it, since it is clearly emphasized by Luke in this passage. Two times Luke mentions fasting in two verses. One in verse 2 paired with worship and again in verse 3 alongside prayer. While worshiping and fasting, the Spirit speaks. And after fasting and praying, they sent Barnabas and Paul away. There are differing views on fasting these days. Some say that fasting is not a New Testament discipline. And they would be right, except that they're wrong. Since this is a New Testament text in which Luke emphasizes fasting, 
Paul, the apostle, is fasting. And last but not least, God, the Holy Spirit, speaks and seems to endorse their fasting. Besides that, Jesus himself fasted and taught about fasting. So the issue is not whether we should or should not fast. Fasting is an incredibly rich spiritual discipline, which I regret, which I regret not to practice more often. Actually, I've not practiced fasting at all this weekend. <laughs> Neither have you. But we must, not think of, we must not think of fasting as a way to bend God's arm to give us what we want. As if our sacrifice could earn God's favor. Rather, fasting is a way of praying by which we prioritize prayer over other things. Especially food. When we fast, we determine that instead of having our meals as usual, we will set that time apart for prayer. That, that is, we become prayer dependent as much as we depend on food. Here's James Montgomery Boyce's definition of fasting. In the Bible, fasting means to forego food for a time in order that in a spiritual frame of mind and having one's time given over to spiritual things, one might seek God's direction for a new phase of life. The church of Antioch was seeking such direction. We can fast other things as well. How about spending some time in, in prayer instead of watching that Netflix series you enjoy so much? Not looking at anyone right now. <laughs> looking at myself. Fasting food, though, making your body weak and needy is particularly encouraging for profound times of prayer to become more prayer dependent like the church in Antioch. And we may not be able to bend God's hand through fasting, but there are times, circumstances, that may draw us to earnest prayer. The suffering of the church, as we saw last week, or the desire to reach others with the gospel. I've heard it say that, and I believe it's true, that what you most desire is what you most pray for. How much do we desire the kingdom of God to come? How often do you pray for new pastors and leaders? These are things that Jesus wants us to pray. Luke 10:2 says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We might as well set up our time of fasting and prayer over these things. 
Note, note also that this was done communally. It was while they, plural, were worshipping and fasting. In fact, this, um, this may have been a Sunday service. The word for worship here is the word from which we get our term liturgy. This is the prayer meeting that changed the world. In the words of John Piper, who has an excellent uh, book about fasting called A Hunger for God, he says, This moment of prayer and fasting resulted in a missions movement that would catapult Christianity from obscurity into being the dominant religion of the Roman Empire within two and a half centuries and would yield 1.3 billion, billion adherents of the Christian religion today. With a Christian witness in virtually every country of the world. And 13 out of the 27 books of the New Testament, Paul's letters, were a result of the ministry that was launched in this historic moment of prayer and fasting. If anything, God, God's movement in Antioch was launched by a prayer-dependent church. And I am convinced God will continue this movement, this movement through prayer-dependent churches today. Five, spirit-led. So, intentionally evangelistic, godly teaching, multicultural focus, prayer-dependent, and now spirit led church and although I'm passionate about this subject I don't want to spend much time on this just a few comments will suffice we do not know how the Spirit said at this moment we do know that this is not some individual subjective idea standing against the opposition of others all five leaders and, pres uh, and presumably the, the whole church agreed that this was the Lord's guidance. No matter the manner or mode of the Spirit's revelation here, it clearly does not contradict God's Spirit-inspired written word. Whatever the case, the Antioch church is a God-worshipping Son-proclaiming, Spirit-led church that intentionally seeks the Spirit's guidance. Finally, number six. The Antioch movement is characterized by, the, by a generously sending church. Verse three. So after they had fasted and prayed, again, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Luke makes it sound so easy, doesn't he? What about the finances? The planning? What missions agency are they working with? Is it a short-term or a long-term mission? 
etc. Sure, most of these questions are good and helpful questions. But we should not lose sight of the fact that the Lord has spoken and they and we must obey. Yes, sending costs money. And I sincerely commend Faith Covenant Church because I know you've been, you, you've been generous towards God's mission. I've seen the world map and pictures in the hallway. There are bigger churches with smaller maps. So praise God. And I understand that for many years you've set aside quite a large percentage of your budget for missions. Again, praise God. What's also challenging in this text is that they're not just sending money, they're sending people. And their best men, that is. It's easy to feel tempted and retain our best people. I mean, why not? They'll probably help us advance God's kingdom here too, right? But sometimes God calls us to release them, to let them go, which is another reason to have multiple leaders training and pastors ordained. Also, in church planting, it might not be one or even one family, but several families leaving to start a new congregation elsewhere. Gone. With all and gifts, tithes, and offerings. Sending means letting go relationships, human resources, money, and much more. But when you have God's kingdom in mind and heart, you know it's worth it. And we become a generously sending church. I recently heard the testimony of a pastor, a friend of mine, uh, who, had, who, who was in, in an ordination service of one of his former pastoral residents. In that service, there were other former interns and residents he has sent off that have, have, have gone from his church throughout the years. And they now are pastoring and replicating this training and sending model all over the U.S. and beyond. It was hard to let them go. But the church's generosity has brought much fruit for God's mission in many places. And don't forget to fast, pray, and lay hands on them as you send them. Note how Barnabas and Paul continued this tradition or practice and also pray and fasted over newly appointed pastors at the end of chapter 14, verse 23. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for the disciples in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So, 
God uses an intentionally evangelistic, godly thought, multiculturally focused, prayer-dependent, spirit-led, and generously sending church to get the mission moving. And the Antioch Church is not the only example of mission movement in history. Have you heard of David Brainard? He's, a, he's Jonathan Edwards' son-in-law. And he was a missionary to Native Americans. He wrote in his diary, Monday, April 19, I set apart this day for fasting and prayer to God for His grace especially to prepare me for the work of the ministry, to give me divine, uh, divine aid and direction in my preparations for that great work and in his own time to send me into his harvest. Charles Simeon, have you heard about Charles Simeon? He was the pastor of Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge, UK. For almost 50 years, he faced great opposition. Some would lock the doors of the church so that people could not come in and sit and listen to him. And still, large number of people gathered to hear him preach every week. After his own conversion... When he was a freshman in university, he was determined to share his new faith with everyone. Also, someone writes, Simeon did what was unthinkable at that time. He invited students into his home on Sundays and Friday evenings for conversation parties to teach them how to preach. By the time he died, by, by the time Simeon died, it is estimated that one-third of all the Anglican ministers in the country had sat under his teaching at one time or another. Simeon was also one of the founders of the Church Missionary Society, the CMS, which... Thankfully, me and my family can say, today, we are supported by the CMS, more than a hundred years later. But, behind all this, writes J.C. Pollock, behind all this lay a devotional life of rare power. Simeon rose early each morning to study the scriptures and often could be seen pacing the roof above his rooms as he prayed for friends and enemies. If ever a man walked with God, it was he. Finally, John Piper also writes that the first Protestant church was planted in Korea in 1884. 100 years later, there were 30,000 churches. That's an average of 300 new churches a year 
for 100 years. At the end of the 20th century, evangelicals comprised about 30% of the population. God has used many means to do his, this great work. One of them, writes Piper, is a recovery not just of dynamic prayer, but of fasting prayer. For example, in the OMS, the Overseas Missionary Society, churches alone, in the OMS churches alone, more than 20,000 people have completed a 40-day fast, usually at one of their prayer houses in the mountains. So, whether it is Antioch, Native Americans, Cam Cambridge University, South Korea, or Wheaton, if we want to see a movement of God and the establishment of God's kingdom, we must, in, we must be intentionally evangelistic and be encouraged by godly pastors. Be multiculturally focused, prayerfully dependent, spirit-led, and generously sending church. Let's pray.